Patricia Duff and welcome to The Common Good. Tonight we have a top tier panel to discuss a very important topic, the first 100 days of President Biden's time in office. Before we begin though, I'd like to acknowledge a few VIPs in the audience. We've got some honorables, um, including Ambassador um, Bagley, Ambassador Paolino, uh, we're thrilled to have Ambassador Don Blinken and his wife, Vera. Of course, he's um, the father of our S Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. Um, and we've got a number of our uh, folks on our uh, Honorary Advisory Board uh, here today. So we're, we're thrilled to have you all. We've got a, a, a terrific people from the West Coast and the East Coast from London. So welcome all. Um, and where you really want to get your questions at Q&A, so please raise your hand early so we can um, get to all your questions. And hello to everyone out there on Facebook where we're live streaming this event as well. So it's been a very busy first 100 days for Joe Biden. With refreshingly little drama and relatively little Twitter activity, the Biden administration has acted decisively to get vaccines in arms and money in pockets and the economy back on track. America is likely through the worst of the pandemic and the economy seems to be rebounding nicely with unemployment edging down to 6% from a high of 15% and GDP is up 6%. So surely okay. Biden will get props for that. Um, so what's next? Well, the Biden administration is going big and trying to move the mountain on infrastructure, child and family support, education, in-home care, um, overall, we could be looking at around $6 trillion in spending with COVID relief infrastructure and the families plan and new tax plans to help pay for all of it. Um, of course, underpinning this um, action is a determination to restore faith in, in government and our democracy and show that it's working again and that Americans can still do big things. It's a very tall order for any president but especially uh, with a slim hold on majorities in the House and Senate, and well, let's just say perhaps an uncooperative Republican party, um, it's, it's, it's a tough lift. So to help us analyze this, we are incredibly fortunate to have an extraordinary panel for you all today. Anita Dunn, whom I have long admired as one of the nation's top political strategists and currently serves as senior advisor to the White House. She's the only person in modern presidential history to be a top advisor to two winning presidential campaigns, working first with Barack Obama and then Joe Biden. She's one of the most powerful women in Washington and we are incredibly excited to have her expertise. Anita, welcome. So glad to see you. Thank you for having me, Pat. And thank you everybody who joined this afternoon. I will tell you, I, I never feel less powerful than when I'm dealing with my children or grandchildren. So I just have to be honest. <laughs> well, it's hard to believe, but we've got a, um, a, a couple of other folks in our, in our panel. Uh, David Frum, he's a great friend of The Common Good, a best-selling author, an incredibly insightful writer for The Atlantic, a former speechwriter for George W. Bush, and a high-level political commentator. We last hosted him to discuss Donald Trump's first months in office and his book, Trumpocracy, so we are thrilled to welcome him again. His most recent book, Trumpocalypse, I'm gonna destroy that, Trumpocalypse, inspires readers of all points of view to believe again in the possibilities of American life. David, thank you so much for joining us. And to help lead this conversation and offer his essential insights, we have a very distinguished author, historian, and member of the Common Good Honorary Advisory Board, Douglas Brinkley. Doug has charted American history for decades, and he is one of our nation's most prominent presidential historians. Doug, thank you so much for being a part of the Common Good community and for joining this conversation tonight. So I'd like to start us off with a question to you. The presidential 100 days benchmark dates back to FDR, who set sweeping changes for the nation in the opening months of his presidency in the middle of a, a national crisis. Some commentators have drawn parallels between Roosevelt's transformational first 100 days and the opening months of Biden's administration. Doug, what do you think of that comparison? And I'm gonna hand the conversation over to you. Well, you know, the problem with doing the 100 days is uh, it used to be you would be inaugurated in March. So FDR was inaugurated in March of 1933. So if you count 100 days, you get the summer recess when everybody would leave Washington. 
And so it was important to um, judge quickly how you behaved in March, April, May um, back then. Today, I think we probably should expand it to a first 200 days uh, in order to give presidents sort of a, a realistic time frame uh, and throughout the spring of their first terms. Um, there's no doubt every president likes to I, the idea of to be the next FDR 100 days in the New Deal. I mean, after all, after FDR, Harry Truman went with the fair deal. And, you know, um, and then you had uh, John F. Kennedy talking about the new frontier. Um, people now are using the term a new New Deal of Joe Biden. Uh, I think we, I, I'd do that if I were in the Biden administration with some caution. Um, the one of the things FDR had going for him, or Lyndon Johnson, say in 1965, is um, the, the you had uh, Democrats and Republicans joining your effort. I mean, FDR in '33 had plenty of Republicans basically told FDR, "Do what you can do," because the economic depression had gone on from 29 and 30, 31, 32. So now do something economically. Um, Biden has come in where the economy was good a year ago. Pre-COVID, it was good. There hasn't been that many years of widespread suffering. So the question is, do we need this sort of massive infrastructure package, which likely will get no Republican votes? It will be all Democrats the way the Affordable uh, Care Act was for Barack Obama. And that led to the Tea Party movement and a boomerang effect. So in short, um, I love the idea of the optimism of FDR. I love the idea of this, of it be perhaps being a new deal uh, coming right now because FDR is my hero. But, you know, AOC co-opted the term new green deal. And now Biden, if he's going to say I'm a new dealer, it might make the party seem too far left. Um, and so I think he needs to stake out his own way. And I like the idea of he's a restorative. He's restoring America. Um, and more than I do Biden as transformational president or the new FDR. So I'm going to let you do, lead the conversation, Doug, wherever you want to take it from there, if you want to go to Anita or David. Well, I would like to start with Anita um, and tell us what, um, how they, you know, they, what's going on with the Biden administration. I got to speak to Kamala Harris for um, about an hour, not too long ago. And there is a kind of, it's interesting that you're, we're watching Biden and, and, and Harris really work in an incredible tandem. And um, you know, we've got all these great cabinet that Biden picked. How is the administration, as you see it, gelling um, to work as a whole? And how, what's, what's the leadership style of, of Biden thus far in the first 100 days? Thank you, Doug. You know, we are, we are actually not running around saying that we're doing a new New Deal or any kind of New Deal. That really our mantra for the first 100 days was um, not as elegant as New Deal or Fair Deal or Square Deal or any of the many deals that you've uh, written about over the years. Ours was very simple, which, which was shots, checks, and jobs. I mean, that, is, that was the focus for the first 100 days, shots in people's arms, checks in people's accounts, and jobs for Americans so they can get back to work and we can get this country closer to normal. And I would say as we move into the second 100 days here, and I'm so with you on the give us longer at the beginning of an administration, right? But um, th that is still very much what we are focused on um, here at the White House. The, um, you know, when Joe Biden announced he was running for the presidency a little more than two years ago, he announced he was running to restore the soul of America to rebuild the backbone of America, which was the middle class, and to unify America. And so that has been from the time he announced for the presidency through into this White House, really the three pillars of what we see as the mission that he has set out to accomplish. And I would say this is a very um, purposeful administration. We have a very good sense what he wants to accomplish and how he wants to accomplish it. And as the president himself has said, you know, his red line is inaction. Now, I think he would take he, he would take some issue with your terming the economy as being in relatively good shape before the pandemic, because it was in very good shape for some people and in very bad shape for, unfortunately, a growing number of people. 
he talked on the stump throughout 2019 about a study that came out in May 2019, actually, about the fact that 27% of all Americans had $400 or less in savings. They were, you know, one car repair away from disaster. And that, and that as a nation, that was not, you know, that was something he found inexcusable. So I would just say that we are still very much focused on getting the shots in people's arms, um, getting, you know, getting the direct support to people from the rescue plan that are on the brink, but above all now, creating jobs and good paying jobs so that Americans aren't living on the edge. Oh, you know, Anita, my original question was about FDR. And I think we have a tendency in our society to kind of make everything seem like that there, our own times are worse than ever. And the point was in 33, I mean, we had, the banks had closed. I mean, we had the, we had a dust bowl and a drought uh, destroying wetlands all of our, our country. There was no electrification in the South. So you had to do rural electrification. So it's important to keep that perspective in mind. Otherwise, we're constantly thinking, I think our own times are the most oppressive ever. And uh, Roosevelt really had a lot to on his plate when he famously gave his inaugural. David, can I get you in the conversation here? Uh, and I wanted to ask you about um, you, what do you see going on in US foreign policy in Biden's first 100 days? Secretary of State Blinken moments ago really gave a very strong warning about to Putin about staying out of the Ukraine. Um, sum up what you see happening. Is there a Biden doctrine in your mind taking place, taking shape in, in foreign policy during this first 100 days? Yeah. Well, let's say first, let me say something about the concept of the 100 days. I think there's something so charmingly American about our use of this phrase. It, of course, the phrase did not originate in American politics. It originated in French politics. And it described the period from Napoleon's landing from Elba in the south of France to his march on Paris, to the Battle of Waterloo, to his abdication. It started, the 100 days started as a measure of total catastrophe, utter failure. And the, and the, and the optimistic United States took the phrase, turned it inside out, and we now use it as a metric of success. Um, so you're doing, so basically, if you avoid Waterloo, you're having a great 100 days. <laughs> The Biden 100 days are different from most other presidents 100 days because the Biden's 100 days are really an overture. As Anita said, it's been about the vaccination program. It's not about anything that Biden entered politics to do. It's not about things that are con connected to the long-term commitments of his party. It's a very specific emergency. Um, the vaccination program has gone well. When it's over, the American people will astonish the world with their ingratitude for this success. They will completely forget about it. It will be as if it never happened. Um, and, uh, and then Biden will be confronting actually um, the, the real work of his administration post the shots. What the shot program has also done is it's created a situation which Biden has this highly artificial period in which there's really one overwhelming national priority that everyone is con now confident will be overcome. It's not like starting in a recession. It's not like um, anything like FDR where the answer wasn't clear. The, the progress had begun and it's been achieved and Biden has obviously made it more efficient. Um, but the real work begins. And it, But when the real work begins, Biden will have less of that power of initiative and agenda control that a president has at the very beginning of the term. Um, and so I think that... Um, the question, and this goes to this one, what are the things that are out there that are going to impose themselves on Biden, where he will lose the ability to say, this is what I came to do, and this is what I wanted to do. And, and I see um, at least four of those, uh, two of them domestic and two of them, as you say, foreign. The first is the um, immigration problem. Um, the United States looks like it's going to have a very strong economy in the second half of 21, 2022. Um, it is going to be sucking in labor from all over the planet. Um, it's hard to immigrate legally to the United States, and the asylum system has turned into a second immigration system. It's got nothing to do with asylum. It's got to do with people seeing economic opportunity in the United States and paying money to, and risking their lives in horrifying ways, like we saw in San Diego, to come to the United States and get a piece of the American dream. It just happens to be um, tremendously politically controversial, uh, crisis-prone, and that's, that's issue one, that the immigration pressures are going to build and build and build. Um, the second is a thing that Warren Buffett and others have pointed to, and that is the accumulation of inflation that the United States has pumped into 
what was a basically healthy macro economy, an enormous amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus. This is not like 2009, where you're pumping blood into a patient that has lost a lot of blood. You're pumping blood into a patient that banged the patient's head, um, but the patient was well before the head bang, and now he's got a lot of blood, and we'll see what happens. So there's an inflation risk. Then we are heading toward two foreign policy challenges. Um, the, the first is the impending collapse of Afghanistan, the American project in Afghanistan. Um, and every day there's more bad news. That war is about to be lost and it's going to be lost. It's not ultimately Biden's fault. He inherited a bad situation, but he's going to be the person who declares the war lost. And then there is this ever accumulating tension with China um, and it's going to get worse and worse. Biden used to be a free trader. He's not anymore. His administration, the Democratic Party used to be a free trading party. It's not anymore. Chinese behavior becomes ever more terrible. And there is, um, they are more and more aggressive. And there is this looming question of what if it does turn out to be true, as many people say, that um, the coronavirus had not a natural origin, but some origin that can in some way reflects Chinese culpability or negligence. What happens then? And he may have on his hands a gigantic trade, economic, military, and ideological confrontation with China. But that's not what he signed up for, but it may be what he got. I'm personally very reassured about Biden's um, presidency in the foreign policy realm. It seems to me he's already re-energized the State Department, um, is able to um, give a coherency to American foreign policy. He's reconnecting in earnest with our allies, particularly our NATO allies. Um, there is this looming threat of China. Um, let me go um, to you, um, Anita, and ask if, what do you think the Biden, is there a doctrine um, that we can get our hands on right now? And I want to push on um, Secretary of State Blinken because his family is part of this conversation now. And, I'm in, and I think he's doing a marvelous job. I say that not because the family's here, but personally, I'm, I've known him and he's such a professional and a pro. Uh, and we obviously have so much we got to get our hands around uh, in foreign policy after four years of Trump. But what are you seeing the priorities going on in the Biden White House? And is there a Biden doctrine? Well, we're only 106 days into this administration. But I, I think that when you look at Joe Biden, what you see is someone who perhaps was as prepared to become president uh, as any person in modern history. Um, he had served for 36 years in the United States Senate and had chaired the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. In fact, was the chairman of that committee when Barack Obama asked him to join the ticket as vice president. And he had eight years here um, in the White House as vice president and by all accounts a vice president who was integrally involved with the administration and with, you know, um, critical policy issues. So he does come into this job with um, particular points of view and prepared for this job. You know, in terms of China, and I was interested in, in what David outlined as our challenges, because of course, when you're president, and David knows this, you can't control everything and you have stuff coming at you over time. I think the president, though, has been clear when it comes to China, which is that he does see a global economic competition and, and one that he is concerned about in terms of the United States. It is a huge piece of what undergirds the American jobs plan and to some extent the American families plan, which is the, um, which is the sense that China has been very clear about its ambition to be the number one world economic power in this century. And President Biden has said, that he does not intend to let that happen and therefore has laid out for the American people a series of things that need to be done, necessary investments in this country. And he is coming into office after four years of, you know, I'm gonna think of a nice way to put this. We always talk about, you know, the last occupants of this place, but there was not a lot of government going on here um, for the last four years. So the challenges that he faces, particularly when it comes to foreign policy, as you identified them, is to rebuild our foreign policy infrastructure, to rebuild our alliances. And he does believe in the power of these alliances and that you know, America shouldn't go it alone, that there is not an America alone foreign policy, but that, um, but that there are alliances. 
and then engage with those that you compete with in the areas where you can find common ground. So even as he had his conversation with Putin um, around sanctions, he is still working to um, on the on the start talks to to on the nuclear treaty. So I think that is what you're going to see from foreign policy. It's going to be in the you know, to defend American interests, to rebuild our alliances, and ultimately to do what we need to do here in the United States to compete in the um, world economic competition of the 21st century. Well, let's take, uh, Anita, what um, David suggested, and that it might turn out that COVID, uh, the novel coronavirus, came out of a laboratory in China uh, Donald Trump supporters are, 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 of course, been saying that and are angry at China over it. If it turns out to be true, and now we got a rocket flying somewhere over from China, a misadventure into space, um, the threats that we have going on with Hong Kong and the anti-democratic impulses, what can the United, what can Joe Biden do with China if they misbehave? So, Doug, I have been in this business a long time certainly long enough not to answer questions that begin with if, okay? So we don't know the answers there, okay? And obviously there are questions still to be asked and answered. The president has made that clear, but I'm not going to engage in that kind of speculation. He has, but he has been very clear with the Chinese government that, and you know, with other governments around the world too, that he is going to protect American interests. At the same time, he is also going to look for common ground where we have interests in commons. For example, at our global climate summit that the president hosted here at the White House, the world's biggest Zoom party, as I like to call it, um, you know, both Premier Xi and Putin were here at the beginning of this. So, you know, there's, there's not an all or nothing here. There are strategic American interests that this president is going to yeah, uh, David, you're not in the White House government position right now. So why don't you 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 uh, um, project concerns you have with China that you first raised, and what do you think the Biden administration might be able to do um, in a containment type of way? Well, there are, um, there are two profound asymmetries between the Republican and Democratic parties as institutions. Um, the first, of course, is the Republicans have a much more favorable political map. Um, that, so that uh, they can convert fewer votes into more power. And the second, and maybe even more valuable, is uh, Republicans, we don't have Republicans in opposition. Um, and so we don't have to deal with the problems that come about from having to face, um, face what a Republican opposition looks like and is going to look like. Um, the Republican Party in the Donald Trump years has been in a state of tremendous psychic stress. Because of Donald Trump's... Um, still mysterious, murky, but not wholesome connection to Russia. They had the patriotism issue taken away. Um, and uh, they also were confronted with the, um, because they had lost, uh, because Republicans were, and Trump in particular, was so disaffected from the George W. Bush foreign policy, um, they were left only with a domestic agenda. And the Republican domestic agenda is always less popular than the Republican foreign policy agenda has the possibility to be, but they didn't have a foreign policy agenda. So they wanna reclaim the flag of patriotism and they wanna have a foreign policy theme to compensate for the unpopularity of the domestic message. So that means that they are scanning the horizon. I mean, the reason to answer this question, the, the point about this question about if it turns out about the Chinese in the lab, there's a, maybe a threshold question, which is how much evidence will it take you or you or you to believe this hypothesis? Uh, for many people in Washington, because the implications are so serious, it will take a lot of evidence to convince them this very upsetting theory is true. But for the Biden administration's opponents, it will not take much evidence to convince them that this theory is true. And so what you're about to see is a lot of acceptance of this idea on the Republican side. And if, if everyone, if there's anyone on this call who's not read Nicholas Wade's article that was posted on his Medium site two or three days ago, I urge you to read that because that is going to become such an important document of these next few months. That is going to become holy writ in Republican world. And it makes the best case yet for the claim that this, which I am not endorsing, I wanna stress, I don't, I am completely agnostic on this. Um, but Biden is gonna find himself under pressure. Meanwhile, he's under pressure from his own party 
to do things like buy American, impose trade barriers. The buy American provisions that Biden's talking about um, have the potential to add as much as $100 billion a year to federal contracting costs. Um, uh, to put that in context, that's what half of all that the United States spends on two-year colleges. Um, and of course, there is this huge increase of the defense budget that happened under Donald Trump, another $100 billion a year. Um, and there will be pressure on, on the Biden administration to continue to build up and to, to meet China. So I am concerned that barring some horrible overt act from the Chinese against Taiwan or something else, that the great statesmanship is going to be to double message that there's a challenge from China, its human rights practices are atrocious, but also that they are not they're not going to overtake the United States. They're not as formidable. I wrote a long article about this in the Atlantic. They're not as formidable as they're made out to seem by various actors in the United States who have their own agenda. And the real most urgent challenge of American foreign policy is to avoid self-harm, um, to avoid overspending on defense, to avoid protectionism, to avoid being a driver of conflict. Don't step away from conflict if it comes to you, but for God's sakes, please don't go seeking it. Even as many forces in the United States, including the Republican Party, push the administration to seek conflict. Um, Anita, the, 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 tell me about the climate with climate change and how serious is the Biden administration on tackling um, climate? How do we get our hands around it? John Kerry, of course, is talking to China, trying to get results. Um, and you've off to a pretty good start on climate, but it tends not to attract attention till a disaster happens, till we have wildfires in California or a, a, a strange hurricane in the Gulf. What can you do at the Biden administration that the Obama administration didn't do? And Obama tried mighty hard, remember, as Alaska trip and trying to get a visual of melting glaciers and all. What, what can Biden do to start awakening people? Is it all about green jobs in the end? Is that the, the way to, um, you know, have a, a nation prioritize climate as a, uh, a existential threat or a, a top tier issue? So coming from where you live, you, you can appreciate that the president is in Lake Charles today, where you had two hurricanes back to back and where it's still, by all accounts from people who are down there with him, looks like a war zone. I mean, the sad reality, Douglas, is that, you know, Americans at this point need less and less convincing about the depth of this problem. I, you know, people in our first hundred days, going back to the beginning of this discussion, kept trying to compare Biden and Obama. There is no comparison, as there's no comparison, as you pointed out, with FDR, the crises each one of them faced were, you know, significant. Um, in the case of FDR, just, you know, horrific. But the, um, but the times are so different. And so it is 12 years since the Obama administration got the House to vote for their cap and trade bill that died in the Senate. And meanwhile, you know, the American people have seen this. You know, they've seen the wildfires. They've seen the hundred year storms that seem to come every year now. They've seen, you know, they've seen the changes. You talk to people who live in South Florida, they've seen those changes. That the people who used to own the beachfront property suddenly are, you know, owning the downtown property away from the beach. So, I, don't, I think that, you know, what the president said at his convention speech um, when he spoke in August of 2020 is that this is one of the four existential crises facing the United States of America, and he believes that. One of the reasons why he convened the Global Summit is one of the reasons why he rejoined the Paris Accords on the first day he was in office, and it's one of the reasons why we're on the road to Glasgow and that he committed to an NDC number um, for 2030 that I think was higher than most people expected the United States to commit to. But we're also realists. Now, 15% of the world's emissions come from the United States and it's gotta be a global effort. So he does see this as a test of global leadership in the United States global leadership. And it's a priority. I think one of the other differences here is that it's a political party now that um, also sees this as a, a priority and the Democratic Party has changed in the last 12 years. But voters have also changed and younger voters in particular, this is an issue for them, a very real issue for them because they're gonna live with the consequences. How do we get young people, Anita, in, engaged in climate? We were talking about FDR in his first 100 days, 
did a civilian conservation corps. They planted billions of trees across the country, unemployed people, young, but they got up at the crack of dawn at Bugle at their camps and they wore uniforms and they were, they didn't have vacation time or things. They, it was a, you know, very um, ardent, almost a military-like approach to dealing with the ravaged American landscape of the 1930s. How do we get, what would, what's the Biden message to young people that might be listening now? How do you get engaged in, the, in fighting climate change? So I'm laughing a little just because I'm trying to think of what Fox News and, um, and um, the other party would say if you tried to do that to, to kids now. Indoctrination, <laughs> you know, impeachment time one more time. Right? So um, it's a very different world now. Well, I would say that the part of the phenomenon that we saw in, in the 2019-2020 um, presidential campaign is that this is the issue that young people are most engaged in and that they are activists on it, that they have grown up with an expectation that things need to happen and their lifestyles are very different and are far more conscious. But what we need to do more than anything as a country is we need to accelerate our move towards the kinds of cleaner energy that we're certainly capable of and that we can export to the rest of the world, which is you know, a huge theme in the president's jobs plan, which is, 75% of the jobs in that jobs plan, building our infrastructure back in a more, um, you know, in a more climate conscious way, you know, investing in these technologies, investing in the R&D so that we can sell it to the rest of the world because the world is moving here too. You know, that, that these are all things that we can as a nation do, they require investment though. And this is something where, you know, the United States have made some progress by the end of the Obama administration, unfortunately, certainly had no momentum over the last four years, but it's something that the president feels, you know, I mean, he, he likes to say it's actually true, if you want to fact check me, he introduced the first climate change bill, it was called global warming back then, you know, in the United States Senate, not a new issue for him, and it's something he's very concerned about. Um, David, you, Joe Biden in many ways ran as a centrist, in order to beat Donald Trump. And we have to remember Trump won the second largest amount of votes in US history, lost by 10 million, but nevertheless. Um, what, is Biden governing as a centrist or do you see him tilting more towards the um, liberal progressive wing of the party? I'm not sure that I understand anymore what those words mean. Um, uh, I mean, I think for me, and I, I, I remain an active member of the Republican party, I'm a registered Republican. Um, we are seeing um, a rotation of who's in which party. Um, the, the idea that, um, you know, I, I, let me just, it's very striking the election of 2018. When you go through the seats that Democrats picked up, the seat that George H.W. Bush won in 66, that stayed Republican through half a century, through Watergate, through Iran-Contra, through the Iraq War, Democrat won that seat in 2018. A Democrat won Newt Gingrich's former seat. A Democrat won Eric Cantor's former seat. Um, the seat just south of the Potomac River, um, Bar um, Barbara Comstock's seat that had been Republican for 60 of the past 66 years, a Democrat won that. Meanwhile, um, other areas of the country are shifting um, and that you have states like Oklahoma and, and West Virginia, which are once massively Democratic states becoming solidly Republican. So we're seeing rotation and we're seeing new kinds of issues. And we're seeing also the um, this is the big change, I think, in American politics. I mean, Republicans have always intuited um, that it would be better for them if somewhat fewer people voted. But it was not self-conscious, self-aware knowledge. And it wasn't um, so much a plan. Um, and it was also, there are lots of groups that had low propensity to vote that were Republican leaning anyway, like, like military people. Um, what you have now is a Republican Party that has become self-aware uh, that if it could lop off 15% of the electorate, it is competitive. But if it's the full electorate, it would have to change a lot of its ideas that it doesn't want to change. And I think the struggle going on right now over the future of Liz Cheney is really indicative about the question is, are, you know, are we going to have a left-right political system the way we remember at the post-war? Or are we going to move into a political system more like what we see in Latin America, what we see in um, parts of Eastern Europe, where we have a, a party of 
um, liberal in the broadest sense of that term and a party that is not liberal, not conservative, but not liberal. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, is Donald Trump a right-wing figure or a left-wing figure? He's the least religious person ever to have sought the presidency, maybe ever, certainly in modern times. I mean, he's the most obviously not religious. Um, he was someone who was not interested in issues about the size of the state at all. He was not interested in deficits. Those, those issues didn't move him. He was interested in who were legitimate members of the American community and who are not, and how do we isolate and uh, <clears throat> disempower and exclude the people whom he did not regard as legitimate members of the American community. So I, I think just as happened in 68, 74, we moved from the New Deal politics to what used to be called the new politics. Um, we are moving into another age of new politics. We're gonna have new alignments. Um, and so uh, you, you get a situation where um, a lot of the people who were the most passionate supporters of Bernie Sanders had Donald Trump as their second favorite candidate. And meanwhile, I think um, if you were, uh, uh, you would have a pretty solid Biden group among wives of recent Republican presidential nominees. Um, I suspect ev that every living wife of a recent president, Republican presidential nominee voted for Joe Biden. You know, I, I think you may, I really agree with really everything you said, um, David, about the labels. There might be though, the idea might be that who believes the federal government is your friend versus who thinks the government in conspiratorial terms is. And maybe that's the strange new divide. I, let me just not to interrupt, but I, I don't think that's right. I mean, I think that, that Donald Trump was constantly complaining that the federal government was not acting enough like his friend. Um, he thought the federal government should be an extension of his ego and that the attorney general should be his personal enforcer. Um, this is where he's a breakthrough candidate. Donald Trump wanted to use the power of the federal state. He nakedly, eagerly wanted to use the power of the federal state. He was he was not interested in. No, but I mean, I was thinking, and we're running tight on time. But I was talking more about the idea that you know um, FDR. We're talking about that Social Security and the government's going to help you. Manhattan Project and Truman, the National Security State and Eisenhower Interstate Highway and I think that chapter is on and on and on. Nixon does you know. Nixon did environmental. What, pardon? I think that chapter is closed. I think we're in yeah. a different I chapter. I think we're in a new chapter now. Fair. Oh, I couldn't agree more. David, I'm just, I'm sorry, but I have to jump in for one second. David, you must read David Shore's piece that posted this morning on New York Magazine site. I actually recommend this to everyone. It's probably the best, most insightful look at kind of the electorate that I've seen coming out of 2020, where you're looking very much at education now as you know, the break point, which is not a new way to look at it, but it became even more pronounced in 2020. It also looks at that, uh, it also looks at the fact that some of the uh, communities of color are starting to behave just in terms of being conservative, progressive, whatever, that they're behaving a little more just um, less in terms of identity politics and more just in terms of, well, conservative or maybe centrist kind of thing. Anyway, it is a for all of you, it is a really intelligent look at Great. kind of the electorate. And it and it goes at some of the myths that you will hear from people about what happened in 2020. And it's very um, consistent with what David was just talking about in terms of, I, I can't even call it a realignment because I don't know where everybody's going to end up. But it's almost like you threw everybody up in the air and they're landing at very different spots. And the issues are very different. The way people kind of define issues is very different than it was when Barack Obama ran, for instance. So. Uh, uh, Anita, with our limited time here, but um, January 6, 2021, where were you? How did you absorb what occurred there? And how is it affecting your time in the White House? You know, I was, um, I was at my home in Woodstock, New York, because we were all working virtually throughout the transition. I was on calls all day. Um, I was actually on a call with a bunch of people uh, with, with some of the leadership staff from the Hill um, because we had been keeping, needless to say, a very close eye on the happenings of January 6th in the, in the Congress and had spent a huge amount of time planning for it. Um, and was on a call with them when, when they said, you know, we're being told that we're in shutdown here in the Capitol and, and everything just kind of dissolved, right? Um, I have a friend who, I, I was in the Capitol the morning of um, September 11, 2001. I was also there for, in Tom Daschle's office, 
the day that they opened the anthrax envelopes. And I have a friend who was there with me for both of those and for this day. And, um, and this one was by far the worst, he told me, by far the worst. But I think that for the president, it was, you know, a day that, you know, a body that he spent 36 years in. And it was also this final sort of what David was talking about, that this is not the Republican Party any longer. This is something I actually am not sure I recognize. So, um, you know, it obviously the challenge of restoring the soul of the nation, unifying the nation became a lot bigger January 6th. And with the aftermath, I mean, this audit of Arizona ballots yeah. and the fact that the Republic, well, what calls itself the Republican Party is agreeing to these things. Fundamentally, just that the price of admission now is to say that you think Donald Trump actually won an election that he lost by over 8 million votes. So it is, um, you know, it's a perilous time here. Um, David, where, just briefly, where were you um, for 9-11? And, and maybe be a little put on your historian's cap a little more. Um, what, how do you think history is going to look at that um, tragedy? 9-11 or January 6th? January 6th. Um, I was like mo most people, I was um, watching it on my um, television. I, I, uh, we don't have many televisions in my house, but we have one. And I was watching the events of the day. I was um, absorbing it in multimedia form. Um, I, I'd spent a lot of time going down to the center of Washington during some of the Black Lives Matter protests and at other points, but I'd had an intuition that this day would actually be um, not a day for tourists. Um, and so so I, I didn't go downtown. Um, and uh, I have to say my reaction to it was, it could not have been more wrong. Um, my, my reaction was I, that this really was the moment where Donald Trump had gone too far, um, where he had created an irreparable breach. Um, and partly because of what happened in Georgia the day before, he had created an irreparable breach between him and the normal advantage seeking Republican politician. And they're going to have to deal with this in some way. And that has turned out to be completely wrong. Um, after, after a short struggle, um, the, the Trump view of the events of January 6th as legitimate, a, no big deal, and to the extent they are a big deal, legitimate and appropriate, um, and that the right thing to do is to defend the January 6th attackers. That's become the, the prevailing view. And although it's completely insincere, I think one of the things um, I've observed in politics is that hypocrisy is a very rare thing in political life. It's too difficult. To say one thing and believe another requires a mental discipline that most people do not have and most politicians don't have. What they say and what they think eventually come into harmony. Either what they say catches up to what they think or what they think catches up to what they say. And if you put them in a position where they have to say again and again and again, January 6th, no big deal. The right thing to do is defend Donald Trump. They will eventually come to think it too. And that's what's happened. I think that's right. Patricia, can I turn to you? Yes, we've got to thank you. This has been an amazing conversation. I, I, I know I'm particularly interested in the uh, political ramifications of, of uh, Biden's first 100 days and what's going on in the alternate universe over there with Trump. But um, so thank you so much, David and Douglas and Anita. Uh, but we have a lot of questions on the table. And so um, more, th more than that are just our raised hands. So I want to go first to Ambassador Elizabeth Bagley. Do you want to start us off? Liz? Sure. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, how are you? Hi. Hi, Doug. Hi, David. Hey. Hi, Anita. Can't see Anita, but anyway. Um, David, you said your, your four um, national priorities that uh, the president has or this administration has, and you listed immigration as the first. So um, I think uh, we can all agree that this, the administration had a few problems in um, deciding what to do on the southern border and have corrected course by reinstating the president's campaign pledge to bring to allow 62,500 at least uh, refugees in um, to that to the southern border. And my question is really, um, how does this impact the political agenda? How does it impact the uh, elections, the midterm elections? Well, the four things I cited were not priorities. They were impending crises that were going to be beyond Biden's control, things that would take away the initiative from him. And they were immigration, inflation, the uh, likely imminent loss of the Afghanistan war, 
and the risk of escalating tension with China, including sufficient proof to convince Republicans that the um, coronavirus escaped from a Chinese lab. These are things he's gonna have to deal with. Um, Biden is on immigration trying to master a, an unmasterable situation. He's trying to look both ways. He's trying to um, satisfy uh, domestic democratic constituencies. He's trying to prevent the crisis from getting too much worse. He's trying to control flows, but also open the door. And I don't think it's going to work. Um, I think that the strength of the American economy, the severity of the economic troubles in South America, where COVID has been such a disaster and has destroyed state capacities, we are going to have um, an escalating tide of people seeking work in the United States. And they're going to be using an asylum system that was set up for Anne Frank's family, but that it has become the main way that people in poor countries now immigrate to the United States. Great, thank you. Um, Patricia? Yeah, and do you, Anita, do you want to add anything to that on uh, immigration? Points, which is that, um, you know, this is an issue that, um, you know, certainly during the Obama administration, we never really were able to deal with in a comprehensive way. I think it's an issue that the Bush administration was not able to deal with in the kind of comprehensive way they would have liked to. And I believe that, um, that President Bush really would have liked to have done that. The last time the immigration system in this country was up, the laws were updated, was in 2006, which like Joe Biden was still a US Senator, as we like to say. So that was a very long time ago. And it was done in a bipartisan way, which obviously is almost impossible to think about now. It is gonna be a huge problem. And it's gonna be a huge problem, um, both because of the situation, you know, the, the devastation that those Northern Triangle countries have suffered, not just from COVID, but also their own corruption and the natural disasters that they had. You know, people um, forget that Hurricane Maria really wiped out so much of the economy and infrastructure of, um, of those countries. So, you know, there's no question, it is a huge problem for us, exacerbated by the fact that the last administration basically, you know, I think fairly cynically set it up to be an even bigger problem than it needed to be by seeing that they were, we were gonna have this huge flow, which started by the way in October of 2020 and very systematically not doing anything to prepare for it. So we are you know, working right now to make sure that we can take care of the children in a safe and humane way. In terms of the overall asylum story, the one thing we did you know, two weeks ago was to make sure that people from countries that the former president had said, couldn't, people couldn't seek asylum from Africa, for example, that we reopened that so people could get on planes who'd been waiting to get on planes and get there. And we did lift a number, but we basically had at the State Department and in the Office of Refugee Resettlement in HHS, we had no infrastructure. So it is an example of the kind of challenge this administration just has to deal with. But I agree with David in the sense that it is a giant, giant problem that there's no easy answer for. And there's no will on the other side to work with us to solve it because they would much rather have it as a political issue in 2022. So I definitely see this as a continuing problem for us. Thank you. I wanna to go to, I'm gonna just give you a few names. So Tom Edelman, you're gonna be next and then Warren and then Morley. We'll try to make these uh, quick, fit them all in. Tom, are you there? I saw him briefly. Yeah, we'll go there. Uh, Warren, do you want to go ahead, and then we'll t we'll go back to Tom. I I think I'm live. Did it work? Oh, there he is. There he is. <laughs> Sorry, B bad handling of unmute. Um, <laughs> thank you, Patricia. Well, it, it's it's pretty clear that in this group, despite some of us being registered Republicans, that. There's a very clear consensus about uh, uh, President Trump, which I think is just fine in this group, but not necessarily in the country. And I'm concerned that I haven't heard anything either this evening or from the administration about what you could do to bring at least a sizable number of those disaffected people back from the Trump camp. Because I regard the greatest single threat to the long-term future of the United States is having that core of wildly disaffected citizens 
ready to feed off, if not Trump, some other demagogue in the future. I was just gonna, it's a, that's a great question. I just wanna say something very brief. I think that's the jobs, jobs, jobs bit out of the infrastructure package. If real money starts getting put into Ohio and Michigan and Indiana and the rest, people are seeing our corridors of I-90 or I-90 or I-75 being rebuilt, major bridges rehauled, a stimulating an economy. Biden is holding well in the public opinion polls. So if he can have 60% and that money really starts getting to people and they get jobs and we have a bit of a, a boom, um, it might uh, allow uh, some Republicans to abandon the, the the Trump ship to peel them off by the sheer fact that the American people like what Biden's infrastructure plan is doing. Um, I mean, my two cents, when, when you're dealing with, I mean, the, you've got a, um, a, a Republican vote, but you have a hard core of people who are alienated from the democratic system, who accept um, uh, anti-democratic means, who accept corruption, um, and I, I think you need to um, divide those two categories. And whenever you're trying to rebuild a, a national consensus, you want to start not with the hardest cases, but the easiest cases, the people who are most reachable. Um, and you're doing all this at a time of, of real transition. But to, um, Anita mentioned David Shore's article. I mean, one of the things that I think Shore has said, I didn't read the particular article yet that she cited, but he's made this point, and I've written about it too, that what happened in 2020 to the Trump coalition was... Um, Trump lost large portions of the white vote. And especially his biggest single group in which he lost were, were white men. Um, and not only college educated men, but um, up, and, up and down the ticket. Where the groups that swung to the Republican party were Latinos and especially Latino men. And not just Cubans and Venezuelans in Florida, Latinos everywhere. And so I think one of the things that um, is gonna be a challenge for uh, Democrats is they're gonna to have to choose between some of their party priorities and some of the requirements of strengthening American democracy. And um, in particular, um, I think a lot of the things that Democrats have done in the name of racial equity, um, and a lot of the assumptions that Democrats have about um, the future of American politics uh, are overlooking some of the realities of the way Latino politics is working. I think how often, and um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez made this point the other day, think how often Democrats say, well, if we make D.C. and Puerto Rico states, we'll pick up Republican senators there. And they just assume that Puerto, Rican will, Puerto Rico will elect Democratic senators. And the evidence is actually that the Republican Party has actually historically been much stronger on Puerto Rico than the Democratic Party has. And you have um, that holding that a lot of the anti-police or at least the anti-police rhetoric, and to the extent there's an anti-police agenda, a lot, of the anti a lot of the talk about immigration and about borders turns out to be very counterproductive uh, with Latino voters. So I think that um, Democrats are going to have to think as they are trying to think, how do they hold on to, how, how do they make sure that Liz Cheney is proven right in 2022 and Kevin McCarthy is proven wrong? How do they make sure that they don't have a kind of Trump caucus in, uh, in Congress and Senate after 2022? Um, they're going to have to um, do less of what they want to do and more of what the country needs them to do. one of the things that was very true about 2020 is that um, Joe Biden ran ahead of his party um, in many of these key areas, that we ran ahead of the congressional party, we ran ahead of the members, we ran ahead of senators in a lot of places. Um, and, you know, it is because of the kind of campaign he ran and sort of how he presented what the choice was to voters. But I, you know, I agree with David. I think that um, you know, I think there are people in my political party, and there have been for years, who, you know, who believe that voters will just automatically show up and vote for the Democratic Party if you tell them there's an election, and taking any voter for granted and not actually listening to them, listening to what they really are talking about and what their priorities are, assuming that you know their priorities based on, um, you know, based on um, what they look like as opposed to who they really are and what they care about. So these are problems for the Democratic Party that I think, you know, Biden actually, you know, for someone who I think many observers thought was a very old fashioned politician, some of those old fashioned, you know, or, or some of those aspects of being a politician who came up, you know, from local politics is listening to people and actually having a sense of what people really care about 
it's one of his greatest strengths. It really is a very strong strength of his, plus his strong convictions that I think are closer to a lot of people in this country. As David said, you know, we are, you know, the, <laughs> David, you keep talking about how the Trump folks won't need a lot of proof about China. I would change that to, they will need no proof if somebody decides to really go make an issue of it, right? But I think that what, what the Democratic Party needs to do and what this White House needs to do is we need to do a couple of really critical things. One is we need to communicate to people all the time, every day, that this is, that they're included, that this time they're, they're part of it, they're part of the deal, that they're not left behind, they're not left out of the deal, right? In particular, those voters who felt disaffected by both political parties, by, by the elites of both political parties over the last 20 years. I think another thing that he has to do is he has to keep trying, and he's going to keep trying because he's Joe Biden, to find that elusive bipartisanness. But he needs to show people that he cares about it, that he actually cares about what the other side thinks, that he listens to what they have to say. We may not agree with them on everything, but we've got to look for the places where we can work together. I think that is going to be a powerful message when we can find those places, move forward together. I mean, for members of Congress who um, you know, spent the last four or 12 years in Washington, just having a president who invites him down and talks to him for a couple of hours has been an enormous change. But you know, 106 days is not enough to really start changing the climate here. It's going to be a long haul. As David points out, the more reasonable voters are the ones that we're going to try to talk to first. But th there is a, a real divide in this country that is going to be quite difficult for anyone on either side. And I will, I'm, David, I would say that there are certainly people in the Democratic Party who will be as hard for a reasonable Republican to talk to, just by nature of their being a Republican. So I think that both parties have have some responsibility here. I'm not doing me too, and I'm not doing both sides because there's no question in my mind which party has more responsibility for what we're looking at right now. But I think that it is incumbent on Democrats and on Biden in particular to really try to take some steps here. I don't disagree with that. Thank you for that. Um, Warren, you next, and Morley and uh, Rick Solomon. And we still have questions after that. Hope we can get to all and keep them short. I apologize, but I have like one more minute. I am one more minute. Well, okay, I may have to say goodbye here. Thank so. you, thank you, Anita. Go ahead. Thank you very much, uh, Patricia. Anita pretty much addressed what I was going to ask about. I was going to ask about the information or communication strategy with the following thing in mind. We're seeing that some of Biden's proposals are proving to be quite popular. I think it's, uh, there's a lot that's alluring to to Trumpist voters in the jobs and infrastructure. Uh, proposals. Um, is it possible with a communication strategy which can get around the right-wing success in misrepresenting or simply not reporting things that might be alluring to potential Trump or Trumpist voters, is there a way of driving a wedge between those voters and their Trumpist Republican representatives in Washington? Is still there? Did she leave? Okay. Um, Patricia, do you want me to answer it or yes, what did you want? Please, Doug, go ahead. Sorry, we, we, we missed it. We didn't even get a chance to say goodbye, but um, thank you, Doug, for that. Yeah, well, the, um, you know, my, my thinking on this for, for what it's worth is it's going to be very tough. I mean, this is a cultural war we're in. Began in the 1960s and 70s. I, I once edited Ronald Reagan's diaries and Reagan in his diaries wrote an entry, my goal is to roll back the great society, exact quote. Um, and things are now turned into this cultural realm and it's not just Fox News versus MSNBC, it's just people are, are going on to their um, own social media sites and the like and echoing. Look at the problems with COVID this week. Well, the Biden rollout's been amazing. They've done a great job. But still, a lot of Americans are buying conspiracy theories about getting vaccinated uh, is going to cause a miscarriage or, um, uh, you know, um, kill your fertility. And these things, how does one combat them? In my field of history, there are so many people that believe Neil Armstrong didn't go to the moon. Um, you know, that, that um, 
you know, have it, it, we're spinning all of this information, which is becoming misinformation. And I don't really know how Biden can can do any more than he's doing, except work through all media outlets, try to use new media, and perhaps keep Trump office platforms as Facebook um, and Twitter and others are apparently doing. You can't be call for sedition and then have a social media platform. Maybe that will take care of part of the problem, but it we are a div divided nation now as we were pre-2020 election. Um, a January 6th, is, I think, has allowed Biden to have a pretty good 100 days, but you know, his 53, 4% approval rating now is below most presidents during their first 100 days. Um, so it, it, he will probably shrink some from that. And I'm afraid it's going to be about the epic battle of 2022 and whether or not um, the, the tr Trump big, who's is the big lie going to um, kill the Republican Party and make them reinvent themselves like Liz, the Liz Cheney party or is Trumpism coming up for another big uh, event in 2024 with perhaps Trump on the ticket? for the Republicans. Um, I thought about the media landscape. Um, I think for all of us on this call, because of our age, because of our socioeconomic position, because of our habits, when we say the media, we think we mean, we probably mean the New York Times, the CNN, companies like that. It's really important to keep in mind always that by far the most important media company in the country, by far, is Facebook. Um, and the second most important media company in the country is YouTube owned by Google. Um, it's important to keep in mind that Joe Rogan's audience is four times bigger uh, than that of any personality on Fox News. Um, his per and his, uh, his audience is bigger than the Today Show. Um, his audience is bigger than any of the other morning shows. Um, uh, the Sunday morning shows might as well be delivered in Latin for all the impact they have on the voter. Um, and if you think <laughs> what, what is showing up on your Facebook feed or your cousin's Facebook feed is crazy. You should see what Spanish language Facebook feeds look like. They are hotbeds of the wildest kinds of conspiratorial thinking. So um, just even defining, the, the very first step is to define the prop problem properly. And whatever they're doing wrong on MSNBC or CNN, however annoying it makes you, it's just, that's not the issue. And even as, um, as Fox News is driven by its audience imperatives toward ever greater extremes, um, that that's as much of a um, pull phenomenon as it is a, a push. One last thing about this. Um, the most circulated fake news story of the 2016 campaign uh, was a story that first appeared in the spring of, of 16 and then it reappeared in the fall that claimed that Pope Francis had endorsed Donald Trump. Now, I'm not a Catholic, but if I were Catholic enough to care whether the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump, I would be Catholic enough to know that no Pope has ever endorsed anyone for president not Al Smith, not Jan F. Kennedy. And this Pope was particularly unlikely to endorse that candidate. It couldn't be true and any believing Catholic had to know it. So why did people circulate it? Because they enjoyed it even though the critical part of their brain knew that it had to be due, uh, true. The customers are as much a problem as the suppliers. And fake news and disinformation, they meet a psychic need uh, that is as real as the economic imperatives on the supply side. You know what? We've just gone a little bit over time. Do you have time to take? Okay, well, should we just let take this one more question? Thank you so much, Morley. Go ahead, and then we're going to have to call it a day with our other questions left. And maybe on somebody else because my question was really to Anita, and it it was about um, going to reconciliation faster after McConnell's statement yesterday that. This whole focus is it's to stop everything. So instead of wasting time on getting them on board with infrastructure and the American Jobs Plan, does she think that they could go to reconciliation faster? Nobody else can answer that. So go to somebody else. <laughs> One thing to just say about that is uh, Mitch McConnell's been consistent. He did that with Barack right. Obama. Right. And he's doing it now. And right. so, you know, I come so I'm wondering about of the these Republicans that are floating around without a home right now. 
it seems to me Mitch McConnell is, and even though Donald Trump says mean things about him, it's the Republican Party. And he doesn't want anything to do with Joe Biden, even though they get along personally. And so I, I'm in agreement that Biden's got to strike and do big what he can do and uh, not worry about them. Right. You know, it's 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 events like this where we have such incredible uh, speakers like Doug Brinkley and David Frum and Anita Dunn that I wish we were still back in uh, in our uh, having our dinners um, because it you guys are, are just um, so smart and so interesting and so on it. So thank you so much for um, for joining us today. Um, I hope we can have you back. You, you know, we, we I, I admire you so much as everyone on this call does. And we we do have, uh, you heard, we do have some Republicans on here as well as Democrats. So we're grateful to have um, David's um, point of view and Doug Brinkley giving us our historical context and uh, awfully grateful to Anita for taking the time from her incredibly busy schedule. All of you, thank you, Doug. Thank you, Thank you, Patricia, for all you're doing. Thank Wonderful. you. I hope I hope we see you again soon. Thank you, you all. Have.